Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 7, Blood and Boyars, Part 1. So we left off last time at the beginning of the reign of Kormisos. Now, as is typical for the period, the dates of the reign of the Khans are often widely different depending on which source you consult. The Nominalia may say one thing, one Byzantine chronicler something else, another chronicler something entirely different. So Kormisos may have reigned for 17 years, or it may have been three. But going with the dates we've been using, our best estimate is that he became Khan in 753. In either case, before 755, there was a peace for whichever Khan reigned, and after 755, there was war. But, but why war? Why then? The simple answer can be found in the form of the Byzantine Emperor Constantine V. Now, Constantine V was not like so many of his predecessors. He was an able administrator and strategist. He was confident enough in his reorganization of the Byzantine military to go on the offensive against the Arabs for the first time in memory in the year 746. By the time 755 came around, his victories in the east had produced a stable frontier with the Arabs. And just as the stable frontier with the Bulgarians had allowed the Byzantines to pursue their war against the Arabs, so too did the stable frontier with the Arabs allow them to turn west again, to turn again against the Bulgarians. So following victory in the east, Constantine V had resettled huge numbers of Armenians and Syrians into Thrace along the Bulgarian border. In doing so, he was indicating his desire to create a more Byzantine, more prosperous, and more powerful Thrace. Recognizing this, Kormisosh believed that an increase in the annual tribute to the Bulgarians was called for. If the tribute was to keep peace with the Byzantines, and the Byzantines were now placing many more, much more wealth and more people at the Bulgarian doorstep, surely this justified a greater payment for their good behavior, right? In addition, it's possible that the previous treaty had forbidden building fortifications on the border. But feeling emboldened, in his secure eastern flank, Constantine V was having none of it and refused Kormisos outright. In response, the Bulgarians, rather predictably, decided to raid Thrace in protest, unknowingly setting off a decades-long series of wars with Constantine V. In an ominous sign of things to come, Constantine showed himself more clever than many of his predecessors, and rather than marching into Bulgarian lands at the head of an army, attacked Kormisos' raiding party about 40 kilometers outside of Constantinople and routed them, causing more damage by pursuing them in their flight. Within a few months, the reign of Kormisos was already over. Whether by a palace coup in response to his defeat or by natural death, we don't know. But his successor was a member of his own family, Vinech. Now, the campaign I'm about to describe 
comes from the account of the Chronicles of Nicephorus, and they're directly contradicted by what has been such a reliable source up to this point, Theophanes the Confessor. And these two accounts, the only two we have of this war, are essentially two ships passing in the night. They describe two entirely different sets of events, and as Stephen Russeman puts it aptly in his 1930 work on the First Bulgarian Empire, quote, neither chronicler appears to have heard of the other's battle. But because the account given by Nicephorus was written on more recently and after these events, and because it contains more details, historians have tended to side with him on this particular account. So, unfortunately for this new Khan, Vinech, Constantine V was learning from the many military disasters Byzantium had so recently faced at the hands of the Bulgarians. His next move was again to avoid the previous Byzantine strategy of simply marching an army north along the coast, and instead transporting an army by ship to the mouth of the Danube. This would both gain the element of surprise and bypass the Bulgarians' best natural defenses. While this force was diverting Bulgarian attention away from the south, Constantine V personally led his main army up from Thrace into the Bulgarian heartland. Now this culminated in the Battle of Marsala in 756, a Byzantine victory at the Bulgarian border fortress. Unfortunately, and rather inexplicably, considering the battle's importance and the fact that the emperor was personally present, we know essentially nothing about the details. However, at this point, a victorious Byzantine army was within striking distance of the Bulgarian capital. So in desperation, Vinek sued for peace. To gain his peace, he had to send his children to Constantinople as hostages, a practice we mentioned in a previous episode. While that's the only detail I could dig up about this peace treaty, it can be assumed that it would also likely have ended Byzantium's annual payments to the Bulgarians. But Constantine V was far from finished. Now, it appears that he now turned his attention to some rebellious Slavs living along the border between Bulgaria and Byzantine lands, and who had been taking advantage of the chaos of the wars between those two states. But now, with the full and complete attention of an emperor and an empire on them, they were subdued quickly. Now, having put out yet another fire, Constantine turned his attention back to Bulgaria. Now, as I mentioned, his armies had at this point campaigned both in the north and the south, and had found many victories. In doing so, they had gained control over much of the country. But you may recall in the last episode when I discussed the differences between the Avars and the Bulgarians, the Bulgarians had firmly established themselves. As a result, the Byzantines had to occupy and control the land that they now controlled, leading to numerous problems. As so many armies had learned the hard way over the centuries, winning a battle and occupying the territory are two vastly different enterprises. So with the situation of his soldiers in Bulgaria deteriorating fast, Constantine V decided it was time for the coup de grace, the killing blow. So he sent his large army north to Pliska, to the capital. Now whether it was to avoid the path along the seacoast which had led to so many disasters with the Bulgarians, or just perhaps to take the most direct route, Constantine V 
personally led his army through the Rishki Pass of the Balkan Mountains on his way to Bliska. This is ironically not far from the location of the Battle of Marsalai three years earlier. But it was in this instance that the Bulgarians demonstrated for the first time a technique of ambush which over the next few centuries would bring them countless victories over their enemies. Now you may remember from the first episode when I discussed Bulgaria's geography that for a relatively small country, Bulgaria has many, many mountains. Many mountains means many mountain passes, and mountain passes are perfect places for ambushes. So in 759, as the Byzantines crossed the Balkan Mountains, they found their way blocked. In their moment of panic, the Bulgarians came upon them and inflicted massive casualties, including many elite soldiers and leading men of the empire. While Constantine V escaped, as Theophanes lightly puts it, he returned, quote, ingloriously. But while the total victory over Bulgaria he craved was now out of his reach, the Bulgarians were still exhausted and desired peace with Constantine. So more hostages were given and peace returned. But the Bulgarian nobles, the boyars, from which the last two khans had been drawn, disagreed, to put it politely, with this strategy. They saw this peace as humiliating, as it had followed a great victory. They wanted Vinech to follow up with more attacks on the Byzantines. They expressed their disagreement with the policies of Vinech by slaughtering him and his family. Thus, the six-year reign of Vinech ended along with the short-lived dominance of the Wokiel clan. Now, before we continue, I want to take a step back and look more into these boyars and their strong disagreement with the policies of Vinech. Now, you've heard me talk about how Bulgaria has had to balance its culture between Byzantine, Slavic, and Proto-Bulgarian influences. Well, one of the places when this balancing act was at its most dramatic fashion was within the boyar class. The basic split was between the boyars who wished to hold on to their old pagan beliefs, fight the Byzantines with all their might, and resist the cultural influences of the Byzantines, and those who disagreed. This had a serious religious element, as they saw the influence of Christianity much in the same way Edward Gibbon did, as weak and feminine in relation to their own strong masculine pagan traditions. The other faction were those who saw the Byzantines in a positive light and believed that the Bulgarians should convert to Christianity, make peace with Byzantium, and move ever closer to them. In general, historians believe that the anti-Byzantine faction was also anti-Slavic, as they wanted to maintain the purity of the proto-Bulgarian culture, while the pro-Byzantine forces desired more integration with the Slavs. Needless to say, as Vinech lay dead on the floor, the former group was thrust into the top position within the Bulgarian state. So when the new Khan Teletz of the House of Ugain, about which we know essentially nothing, took control, he had one thing on his mind. War. And so he prepared for it. Teletz was 30 years old, charismatic, full of energy. He was a man in his prime, ready for the challenge of a lifetime. But the Bulgarian state was exhausted, as I mentioned. So Teletz quickly turned to dramatic measures. He imposed a forced levy on the population. Think of this as a military draft. But just as I mentioned, Teletz represented the anti-Slavic pro-war faction. 
and therefore his policy did not exactly agree with his Slavic subjects. In response, over 200,000 of them left Bulgaria to seek asylum in the Byzantine Empire. They were received with open arms and settled in Bithynia, near the modern Turkish city of Bursa. Despite these setbacks, the war began without delay, as Telets invaded Thrace with the largest and best-equipped army Bulgaria had ever put into the field. But while he sounds like a rash and foolhardy young man, he appeared at least initially to have more sense than he might be given credit for. Telets took many of the Byzantine frontier fortresses whose construction had prompted Kormisos to begin his war just seven years earlier. But then, he waited. He fortified his position and waited for the Byzantines. Now, in many respects, this was a clever move. Rather than rushing headlong into Thrace and exposing himself, Tillet smartly found an excellent position and waited for his enemy to come to him. In most circumstances, this would be an excellent strategy. The Byzantines, being so often pressed on all sides, usually fought their wars in a serious time crunch. But this time, as I mentioned, the Byzantine eastern frontier was at peace. The empire had all the time and resources it needed to focus entirely on the Bulgarians. So while Telets waited, Constantine V was busy preparing his own strategy. He wasn't about to let the Bulgarians dictate how this war was going to be fought. So at the same time the Bulgarians were fortifying themselves, a fleet of ships carrying nearly 10,000 cavalry was landing at the mouth of the Danube while Constantine himself was leading his army north along the coast. In essence, he was conducting an updated version of his strategy that he had just used against Kormisos. As the two armies of his pincer converged, it was clear that it would not be Teletsu who would be dictating the terms of the war. So in response to this strategy, Teletsu had to abandon his position and rushed to face the Byzantines, ideally before their armies could link up. Unfortunately, by the time he reached the area where the Byzantines had merged their armies, it was at the fortress of Anchialus. Sound familiar? See, didn't I tell you to pay attention when I described Anchialus? Now, believe it or not, this is still not where the last major battle is going to be on this ground. In fact, it's rather amazing that this site isn't better marked today, considering its incredible importance to the history of Bulgaria. But anyway, if you'll recall, the plains at Anchialos are near the very end of the Balkan Mountains. So Telets continued to block all the passes through the mountains and position his army in a well-fortified position overlooking the area. Again, in a potentially smart move. Except that this was his country, and the enemy was near his capital. If Constantine V decided to move on Pliska, Telets would have to abandon his position. Still, there was a possibility that the Byzantines would be foolish and attack him. But Telets finally abandoned his uncanny self-control as he sent his army down into the plain on a clear June morning in the year 763. I'll let Theophanes take over from here. Quote, Telets came marching with a multitude of nations, and, battle having been joined, there was a mutual slaughter for a long time. Telets was routed and fled. The battle lasted from the fifth hour until evening. Great numbers of Bulgarians were killed, many were captured, and others deserted. 
Elated by his victory, the emperor celebrated a triumph in the city, which he entered in full armor together with his army to the acclamations of the Demis, dragging the Bulgarian captives in wooden fetters. The latter he ordered to be beheaded by the citizens outside the Golden Gate. So it appears this battle was quite different than most of those before it between the Bulgarians and the Byzantines. This was a slogging match. What Theophanes leaves out is both that the Byzantines also took heavy casualties and that the turning point in the battle appears to have been the defection of 20,000 Slavic auxiliaries to the Byzantine side. But in any case, the greatest army that Bulgaria had yet had was scattered to the wind and a triumph was being held in Constantinople. Telets would not survive his failure. Within a year, his people rose up, killing him and his family. He had reigned for just three years. His successor, Sabine, would last barely a year. He was the brother-in-law of Kormisosh and so was technically part of the Wolkia clan, but only in marriage. Based on his name, it's believed that he was a Slav and therefore represented the pro-Slavic, pro-peace with the Byzantines faction within Bulgaria. Because he likely was a Slav, we think he was also left out of the nominalia of the Bulgarian Khans which I suppose was only for the proto-Bulgarian members. But owing to his political allegiances, he quickly set about making peace by sending secret envoys to Constantine V. But the war faction within the Bulgarian nobility would not be so easily defeated. When the secret envoys were discovered, there was a near revolt, with the boyars claiming, quote, On your account, Bulgaria is about to be enslaved by the Romans. So Sabine fled for his life, making it to Mesambria, modern-day Nesebar, which was part of the Byzantine Empire and on the Black Sea coast. There he asked for the protection of his emperor, and it was granted, and his entire family escaped to Byzantine territory. They would never see Bulgaria again. Unfortunately, this is far from the end of the violence. As you may have noticed, the title of this episode is a part one. That's because we're just halfway through the revolving door of Khans and the seemingly endless wars with Byzantium, which will continue for decades to come. So next time we're going to finish off the rest of the 8th century and bring our story to one of the towering figures of early Bulgarian history, Khan Krum, a man who will change everything. This podcast is produced by Martin Christoph. The composer of our theme music is Teddy Raven, and the story is written by me, Eric Halsey. Help us to spread the word by liking us on Facebook, writing a review on iTunes, or checking out our website at bghistorypodcast.com, where you can find useful resources that will come along with each episode. For this episode, we have a map of the Bulgarian-Byzantine Wars of this period, as well as a nice map of Bulgaria in the year 900, which nonetheless contains a lot of place names and geographic details that you should find useful for this episode. As always, consider making a donation with the PayPal button on the website. It really makes a huge difference, and it does get us all extra excited every time it happens. So thanks, everybody, and until next time, uspech, or in English, good luck.